You're listening to The Moment, compelling conversations with amazing Canberra women, hosted by award-winning journalist Ginger Gorman. Today, Ginger talks to Sally Higgins, a former social worker who woke up on what seemed like an ordinary day four years ago, except that it turned out to be not so ordinary at all. This day, this moment, changed Sally's life forever. The day that it happened was a Friday morning, so I dropped the kids to school and had come home, and each Friday I was having a catch-up with a girlfriend where she'd come over here and the two of us would walk our dog and just catch up as girlfriends do. And then we'd stopped off at the shops that are near where we live and got a takeaway coffee and finished our walk back home. And then she sort of said her farewells and went home. And then later on, I must have not been feeling well because apparently I called her and said, are you feeling okay? And she said, yep, yep, I'm fine. Why? I said, because I've just been sick and I was wondering if it was the coffees we had, which of course coffees don't make you vomit, but apparently now in hindsight, I've been told that's probably when the aneurysm had burst and it's the body's way of trying to expel the foreign matter. So you were vomiting, but you don't actually remember that. I do have a vague memory because I remember lying in bed having a bad headache and I must have got up and vomited and thought, hmm, that's a bit strange and I wonder if it was a coffee. So I thought I'd ring Karen and say, are you okay? So she's like, yeah, no, I'm fine. And then I actually now in hindsight, I'm piecing things together. I, I was due to have a haircut that afternoon and I thought to myself, oh, I've been sick, I better ring and cancel and so as a, a good client did, I <laughs> cancelled my hair appointment and then must have gone and lay back down in bed and that's when it happened. So basically they only found me because I didn't pick the kids up from school. So one of the other mums from school took my sons to the front office and said, Sal hasn't picked the boys up. So they then called my husband at work and said, Sal hasn't you know, the boys are still here and he called my parents and they just live in the next suburb to us and my, they have a front door key. So they came across and then found me unconscious on the bed. They must have been terrified, Sal, just thinking of walking in and seeing their perfectly healthy daughter yeah. who was not yet 40 unconscious on the bed. Yes, well, I think they thought that initially I was asleep. Apparently it looked very peaceful and I looked like I was asleep, but then they realised they couldn't rouse me and that's when they then called the ambulance. And they couldn't find our phone because it's a cordless and I mustn't have hung it up. So they then ran to the neighbours and used their phone and called the ambulance. Where did you go when you went in the ambulance? To the Canberra Hospital. By then my husband left work and came home and he arrived just as I was being put into the ambulance and there was apparently a fire truck here as well. And so I've since learnt that when it's not busy, sometimes the fires get called to assist the ambulance. So I think they must have, one of the fireys must have driven the ambulance so the paramedic could be in the back with me. So, and we have a close friend that's brother's a fiery. So my husband's like, oh, do you know so-and-so? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know. So I think even before I got to hospital, all our sort of close circle of friends knew what had happened because we have the fire is being involved. But what did your husband think, like turning up to your place 
mid-afternoon and there's an ambulance and a fire truck outside your house, immediately he must have felt so afraid. Yeah, well, I think initially from what I understand, he and my mother-in-law both thought I must have been in a car crash um, because they couldn't think of what else could have happened. So, yeah, so I think they realised something serious had happened and Mm. then my husband jumped into the ambulance and went to the hospital with me. Do you know what happened then? I mean, this is only from what people have told me because obviously I was out to it, but I was taken up and had a scan, a CT or a MRI, I'm not sure which, but I had a scan and that's when they could tell that I'd had a stroke. So there'd been a bleed in the brain and it was a big one. So at that stage they were telling my husband to prepare the kids for me not coming home and we're giving him sort of single-digit chances of survival. And my husband, who's an academic and in that sort of maths and numbers field, knew that that wasn't good. He had to tell the kids. So, But you are here. <laughs> I am here. And it's interesting because my sister had just been diagnosed with breast cancer two weeks before I had my stroke. And she, I feel like in many ways, I've got her to thank for being here because she helped my husband navigate through the medical system and was the person that found a neurosurgeon in Sydney that specialised in the condition I have, which was an arterial venous malformation or an AVM. So she was able to help Tim sort of work through and sort of suggest to the neurosurgeons here in Canberra that, you know, we want this particular neurosurgeon in Sydney, who's Professor Michael Morgan, who specialised in the AVMs. And what, So what does AVM mean? Well, it's an arterial venous malformation, so not that I'm a doctor, but from what I understand and have been told that when I was developing in utero and the brain splits into the left and right hemispheres, there was still arteries connecting the two sides of the brain and after 40 years, it obviously they it weakened and it burst. So it's like a little bubble in the arteries or veins or whatever. I was airlifted up to Sydney to be operated by Professor Michael Morgan and I then stayed up in Sydney for several weeks in ICU and in the recovery up there and then airlifted back to Canberra. So meanwhile my husband was travelling up to Sydney with the boys and, you know, being with me and my parents and my sister when my husband needed to come back to Canberra just to help the kids sort of settle in and get them back into a routine my mum and my sister, eldest sister, um, came up to Sydney and stayed with me. As a mum of little kids, I'm just trying to ha- imagine how that might have affected your children because when you're that age, you know, your your parents are your whole life. You can't really envisage a world in which they're not there and they're not being your mainstays, you know? Yeah, no, I think it was incredibly hard and, I mean, the boys were... How old were they? Six and eight when it happened. And so when my husband said, you know, mum may not be coming home from hospital, my older son knew exactly what was being implied, but I don't think my younger son really understood. But yeah, so it was pretty hard on them. And of course, at that stage, we were having then lots of family and friends stopping in to see my sons and my husband to show their support and bringing food over. And at one point... You know, we apparently had a room full of guests or visitors 
and my older son said to my mother-in-law, you know, Grandma, there's too many people in the house, too many people. So she basically just stood up and said, thank you, everybody, for coming, and now you must all leave, and basically showed them the door. And I just thought, oh, my God, there's no way that I could have done that. No, but it's almost like he knew what he needed or something like that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. She knew how to protect these boys and that they just needed the house to themselves. And um, what did going to Sydney have to do with your recovery? In your mind, is that an important thing in terms of the way that you have survived this? Well, I probably wouldn't have survived. I don't think the neurosurgeons in Canberra initially think they could operate. And then they were sort of saying things to my husband, like, we've never done one before, but we're willing to give it a go. And he just said, well, if this was your wife, who would you get to do the surgery? And they said, look, I'd send her to Sydney. And he went, yes, let's let's do that. So once that was, they spoke to Professor Michael Morgan and it was established, yes, he would be able to operate. I was airlifted up to Sydney that night and operated early the next morning and then he flew out of the country to attend some conferences these important doctors do. I'm just having trouble getting my head around this because you, you're sitting in front of me looking so vibrant in this beautiful house and, you know, you look like any other young mum, Sally. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. It's... It, it did take you a long time, though, to get to where you are today. I mean, this is – I'm looking at you now quite a few years later. Yeah. It, it has taken you a long time to get here. Look, it has been. It'll be four years at the end of March. So it has been. And, you know, I was in hospital for six or well, five months. So I was in rehab and then went, did community rehab and then vocational rehab and got through all of those steps and started back at work. So things are starting to get back into normal, but things are also very different. And it must have impacted everything, like your relationship with your husband, your relationships with all the people around you, your children, your career. It's had a huge, huge impact. So, yes, initially when I was having the neuropsych assessment, their results indicated or said basically I wasn't allowed to be left home alone. So either my husband or my parents had to be with me full time which certainly changes the dynamic from a marriage to sort of a father-daughter or caring arrangement. So, But, you know, he didn't complain ever and has just been hugely supportive and beyond fabulous. So, yeah, without the support of family and friends, I certainly wouldn't be as, you know, far ahead as I am. So, And what about the kids? Like, do they relate to you in a different way or worry about you being here? You know, one of the things I always say to my kids is, it's okay, I'm not going anywhere, you know, I'm I'm always going to be here. Look, I think initially, um, because I was never late to school, because my younger son used to have quite significant anxieties and would always do these little rituals to make sh- before he left me in the mornings to go inside to the classrooms and, you know, pick me up at three o'clock, keep it in the front of your mind and he would do this little ritual over and over. And then, of course, one day I didn't pick him up at three o'clock. And that's when I think he's like, holy doolies, you know, these things do happen. But in some ways, I think they've actually become through it remarkably well and more resilient because of it. And I feel like I've got my family and friends to really thank for that, where, you know, my husband did some very clever but simple things to help them. Things like he bought a super king size bed so he could have the boys in the bed with him you know, in the early days. And I think he probably needed that as much as they did. 
and my mother-in-law moved in and just sort of slept on the floor in one of the boys' bedrooms for as long as, you know, it was needed. And then at one point my older son was sort of saying, well, what's the purpose of living when bad things can happen to good people? Which sort of unsettled my husband and he went, okay, the kids have been out of school now for a few weeks, going up to Sydney, visiting me. They need to be back in their routine at school, amongst their friends. And for a whole week he sat in the front office So if the kids ever needed to leave the classroom, they could just come in and get a hug from him. And because the the school was right across the road from the hospital, if he had to go and see one of my doctors, my mother-in-law would come down and just sit in the front office. And it was very inconspicuous. Nobody knew it wasn't, you know, broadcast why he was sitting there. But, you know, and as a social worker, you know, looking at it from an attachment perspective, that's exactly what they needed. And it's amazing, actually. It's kind of almost like, you know, living on your wits or living on your intuition. But sometimes that can be right. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, what about you? Like, I know you were a social worker before you had this brain aneurysm. And now it's actually been quite challenging for you to go back to work, which is perhaps one of the things people don't think about when it comes to brain injuries, that it's not, okay, Sal's great, she's better. Mm. You're actually living with a very long-term consequence in a way. Absolutely. And I think when people look at me, they go, they don't sort of go, oh, you don't look like you've had a stroke. And I'm like, yes, the acquired brain injury is the hidden disability because to look at me, it wouldn't, you wouldn't know. But it's had a huge impact on my life where, you know, the outcome has been that I'm no longer able to work as a social worker. Does that make you angry where you think, why? Like, why? I've, I did all this study, you know, I was just going about my business. Why? I must admit, when I got the results from the neuropsych, you know, I was railing against the world and thinking, you know, when people get to retire, they usually get to plan when it happens. They choose a date. They use up all their leave. They base it on, you know, whatever. And they get to have their farewell parties. And for me, I woke up, had the aneurysm, and that's my career over with. So for a long time, I was just railing against the world. But I have a good friend that basically said, Sal, there's no way around it. You've just got to grieve, you know, grieve the loss of that job that you love. But what makes it slightly easier, I think, is that the job I love was in a service that I loved and that service has now been shut down. So the job was never to go back to anyway. Mm -hmm. So... And if you think about that moment and this kind of catastrophic thing that's happened to you, has it made you reflect on the other things in your life more, like the things that you do have perhaps? It definitely does. And I often say that there has been some good things as a result of my stroke, things that I wouldn't have even expected, things like I had lost contact with friends that through no other reason except the busyness of life, And now they're back in my life again. And for that, I'm really grateful. And also it helped me come to terms. So my sister that was diagnosed with breast cancer ended up passing away six months later overseas on a holiday that she and her husband had booked prior to her diagnosis. And they thought, no, they'd go anyway. And in many ways, the way that she passed away, whilst we knew she had breast cancer and it was terminal, we didn't expect that she was going to pass away when she did on this lovely overseas holiday But the way she passed away gives me a sense of peace because apparently they went to Iceland and she'd travelled around by light plane, sightseeing, seeing the volcanoes. And then at the end of the day, she complained of not feeling well. So her husband took her to the hospital 
where they did a scan and she had a massive bleed in her head. So the cancer had obviously spread and had burst or whatever. And so she slipped into unconsciousness and passed away a few hours later. And having had my stroke, I know it would have been a very quick and painless way for her to go. That's helped me grieve for her. You've been listening to The Moment, compelling conversations with amazing Canberra women, hosted by award-winning journalist Ginger Gorman. Today, Ginger has been talking to Sally Higgins about the day she had a brain aneurysm and nearly died. Don't forget, if you want to nominate someone for our podcast, go to hercanberra.com.au.